Right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tomasetti Talks, where I will be your host. Um, my name is Edward Tomasetti. I am a current undergraduate student at North Carolina State University, and my major is fisheries, wildlife, and conservation biology. I originally started Tomasetti Talks through one of my classes where I had to learn how to do social media and blog posts, but I continued on with that platform because it's a great tool to help reach people. And today we are taking that blog format to a video, vlog, podcast, interview type of format. And we're going to have, I'm pretty excited because we have a very interesting subject where we will be talking about gold mining in the Peruvian Amazon today. And I'm especially excited because we have a special guest, Dr. Gideon Erkenswick. Now, I just want to make sure, did I say that right? You did. I did. Okay, yeah, just making sure. Um, but Dr. Erkenswick is a biologist that loves wildlife and big data. He has participated in research on parasite ecology, infectious disease, and primate natural history. And his current research uh, revolves around two main themes, pathogen host interactions and wildlife pathogen surveillance. Though he does work at two labs at the University of Washington School of Medicine in St. Louis, I personally know him through Field Projects International, where he is the co-director and senior researcher. So Gideon, thank you very much for coming on today. It's my pleasure. So just getting started, I mentioned that I know you through FPI, Field Projects International, but most of the audience here isn't going to know what that is. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Um, I sure can. Field Projects International uh, is the organization that was created um, out of the dissertation work of myself and the other co-founder, Dr. Mernalini Erkenswick-Watza. Um, we are married. We didn't start out that way. Um, and um, it, we created the organization in 2009 to facilitate a large mark recapture effort in the Peruvian Amazon to study uh, primates in particular. And over the years, um, interest in our program grew. And so we formally incorporated and made our name Field Projects International um, and also started offering not only the same sort of research assistance programs, research assistant programs that we did when we started, but also short field courses that now take place um, at, at locations globally. Um, India, Indonesia, the U.S. Um, and um, we still uh, have the bulk of our work take place in Peru um, each year. Um, we've expanded our initial research projects. Now there's, there's many other PIs involved with our organization. Um, and we have uh, a larger administrative team. And uh, we basically focus on conservation, education, and topics and research. Um, and I think that's, that's the gist of it. Yeah, and that I came across this opportunity through my emails last year and was so glad that I applied and, and I got to participate. So although we are not going to get too deep into my experiences with that this summer. I just want to let anybody know that's listening that might be interested in learning more about Field Projects International. You can definitely reach out to me 
And I will make sure in the blog post that there is a link to their website so you can explore those that research and those opportunities a little bit more if you would like. So with the topic of mining in Peru and the just the majority of your research happening in Peru, how long have you been visiting the Peruvian Amazon? My first trip was in 2009, um, and my last trip was this past season, so 2009 to 2021. And I know that the pandemic might have stopped that uh, from last year, but do you go every year? Yes, um, at least once a year, usually for somewhere between um, one and a half to three months. Um, occasionally, there's a, a trip that takes place um, in another time of year. Um, most of our programs um, operate during the summer months when um, universities and colleges are on their summer break. Uh, so yeah, we, we more rarely get to go to the field um, during the winter season. The summer season, though, we're always there. Oh, yeah. So you... I know that the majority of your research, you personally aren't digging too far into the gold mining in Peru, but the reason I really wanted you to join today was because you have been visiting it year after year for over 10 years now. So you have seen the progression and see how that is affecting the ecosystem of the Peruvian Amazon. So can you discuss what you have seen as far as progression of gold mining in the yeah. Amazon rainforest over those years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're correct. My research doesn't focus explicitly on um, gold mining, but anyone that works in uh, the Peruvian Amazon, you know, has experienced it and cannot ignore it. Um, so uh, my my first, my, the very first time I, I, I apologize, there, are, there will be background noises because um, there are kids outside. So hopefully that's not too distracting. Um, my first experience with uh, gold mining was on my very first trip to the Amazon, probably a lot like you, Ed. Um, I rode, you know, I arrived in Puerto Maldonado, which is the capital of the Madre de Dios department in Peru. Um, and uh, I took a boat up the river to the field station. And at the time, there, there was only one boat a day and it had everything and everyone on it. People carrying chickens, motorcycles, uh, families, uh, tanks of gasoline, uh, crates of beer. It was just one boat that went up the river every single day and you either got on it or you missed it and it left at six in the morning. And um, there were no seats. Um, but during that first trip, um, as everyone's laying on like the base of the boat, um, you, you, it, and it took probably eight to nine hours to get to the station. I passed just numerous mining rigs. Um, and the first time I saw them, I would thought, what are these things? These are strange things. They're sort of propped up on heaps of rubble and it looks like a slide and there's water being poured down the slide and there's. There's, there's people standing around it, you know, like shoveling things or like um, they're inside a big dumpster can squishing something with their feet. 
um, and there's a generator running constantly. And so they had these things, th these things were all along the river. And one of the researchers I was uh, traveling with explained to me that this is what um, artisanal and small scale gold mining looks like. Basically people um, can go anywhere, you know, in the, you know, um, in, in like an, uh, uh, anywhere along a river that, that flows out of the Andes, um, which has all sorts of like precious metals in its sediment and basically sift through the sediment and try to extract tiny flecks of gold. Um, and so when I went down the river for this very first time, I saw everything from very tiny rigs to multi-story river boats or like river houses um, with enormous slides and spoons um, to, to do like industrial level mining work. Um, and yeah, it was shocking. Um, and there was a lot of it. Uh, and eventually I got to the station and the station is um, uh, situated at the confluence of two rivers, the Madre de Dios River and the Los Amigos. And the Los Amigos River has been protected for a, a long time. So the contrast between the two was just shocking to me. Like, on the one hand, you have this heavily used river um with gold mining you know every every couple of kilometers there there was an there was a rig um and then on the other um you have absolutely pristine beaches wildlife sightings much easier um and so yeah the the, the contrast you know right away hits you just like it must have hit you <laughs> when you came yeah that sounds very some very familiar and similar to my experiences because same exact thing. I hopped on the boat and I had no idea what, what those were. Um, and then it didn't even hit me until I got to the field station and you were the one that explained that, yeah, those were, those were mining um, operations going on and I had no idea. And the same thing when I did trek off to find the Los Amigos river, it was a lot more peaceful and, look look natural compared to Madre de Dios. So you did briefly talk about some of the actions that you've seen as far as the mining. Do you know how the mining is actually done with, you know, what types of chemicals they use or what methods they use? Yeah. Um, every, every mining, um, Every miner in that area uses the same method, essentially. It's just sort of the equipment you have, whether you can increase production. Um, but it, everyone uses mercury. So mercury is called like silver gold or quicksilver, you know, because it's a beautiful silver metal. Um, it has this unique property of binding with gold. Um, so if you have liquid, if you have mercury in liquid form and you pour it into something where you have tiny flecks of gold, even flecks that are so uh, microscopic that you can't see them, the mercury will start binding to it and form an amalgam with the gold. And so then you end up having a sizable nugget. And I think the ratio is like one to one. So it binds one to one with, with gold. Um, so then you'll have this nugget that you can much more easily see and strain out uh, using various techniques. And then you can very easily get the mercury off because gold and mercury have different properties. So if you expose it to heat, 
mercury will turn into a gaseous form very readily and, and float off in the environment. And that's what you're left with is the pure gold. Okay. Yeah. So definitely using the mercury. That's, that's what I've been coming across as well. Now, do you know what this use of mercury, the effects that it has on the soil and how it gets into the ecosystem? Yes. So, um, so mercury, um, so if you can imagine one of these, one of these rigs and slides, like I was describing, um, so basically, um, uh, so mercury, liquid mercury is used, um, and it's used after fine sediment gets collected on like a carpet. So basically sediment is, uh, lifted up onto this slide and then washed down along a carpet, which makes it look like everyone has a little water slide where they work. And then um, this fine carpet sort of, which a lots of little particles get stuck to, um, from what I understand, can then be put into a container and mercury can get poured into it. Um, and you imagine liquid mercury, not all of it's gonna stay in the container um, there's going to be liquid mercury, like all over the place when you eventually lift out your rug, that's going to flow off into the river system, the hydrosphere. Um, so, so it make so when mercury enters the hydrosphere, um, it, it gets converted by bacteria in the environment to methyl mercury. And that's the really bad form of mercury that is highly toxic, um, and highly stable. Um, and can travel for very, very large distances and can bioaccumulate up the, the food chain. So you have liquid mercury runoff from the whole process. Um, and then you have the other part, which is once you have your amalgam and you wanna extract gold from it, you burn it and you create um, gaseous mercury that just floats off into the atmosphere and can settle anywhere. And when it's settled, you know, as, as it basically interacts with bacteria in the environment, it just, it's transformed into methylmercury and methylmercury then goes all over the place, even to the Arctic. Wow. It seems like a, like a super spreader after, after it's used and the gold is extracted. And so it definitely touches a lot more of the ecosystem than just originally seen at the mine itself. But the, the sort of the mines that I've seen were considered like smaller scale mining operations. But when looking at the area that has been previously mined, it looks like pretty large area is now just completely dest destructed. And there's no, you know, there's no more plants. There's no more vegetation growing. What happens to that land once they have turned it over collected their gold and moved on to another location? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, there, so well, there's two parts to this. Um, and since you're bringing up the forest being um, sort of affected, I'll mention the other one. So there's, there's the mercury contamination that comes from actively using it to collect gold. But then there's mercury uh, that flows back into the environment from deforestation. So there is environmental mercury. So when you deforest the Amazon, um, you're releasing mercury in, into the hydrosphere as well. 
Um, so it just it sort of compounds the effect. Although the, the vast majority we expect, uh, you know, the vast majority of the methylmercury that's causing problems is related to the what, what mining, um, the mining industry brings. Um, but yeah, so the generally the where where these rigs get set up to do mining, people cut down forest um, along the river and as they get more bold and more capable and get more infrastructure, then they move inwards to forest areas and they'll just cut down forest um, or find lakes, oxbow lakes, and, and they churn up the sediment, create heaps of um, rocks and, and sediment where once forest was. And these areas basically once made bare, um, what happens to them is they, they'll start to enter a successional forest you know, phase where you know you have um you, it the forest structure just becomes probably you know transforms from mature forest that takes uh ecological time to be created to just like weedy fast growing species that disperse quickly and establish themselves in um very challenging environments like sun-baked you know beach or or rock um substrates um, and it takes a very long time to recover what was lost. Um, and, you know, you can, so, so now, but because, because of how long it takes uh, for forest to return to what it was, um, the main method for monitoring mercury and associated deforestation is satellite imagery. I mean, you can go back as far as the 19, well, whenever satellite technology became very common, but into the 1900s and, and, and see, you know, you can, you can identify local areas that have been mined um, because of the cleared forests. Yeah. One of, one of the most amazing things to me when people ask me about my experience in the rainforest was how dense the forest <laughs> really is. I, you know, they would always ask me if I saw certain animals and stuff like that. I'm like, I might not have seen them. I might've known that they were there, but I, you can't see 12 feet in front of you because of how dense the forest is. So I can't imagine how much ecological time it actually takes for it to get back to, you know, that mature forest that the surrounding areas have. Um, so talking about it, it obviously has a lot of effects on the ecosystem. I can only imagine how it goes down, you know, getting into the food chain and then the indigenous people there and, um, you know, using the river as a food source and things of that nature. I could imagine that that would have an effect on their health as well. Do you know anything about the health of, you know, the local people that live in the rainforest and how that affects their lifestyle? Um, yeah, I, um, so we know that um, there's been um, really high profile cases in the past, like Minamata disease, um, that established very clearly that high levels of mercury um, in your in animals or humans causes uh, neurological dysfunction. It can cause, um, yeah, just behavioral and physiological effects. Not all of which we understand, but Minamata disease was basically the result of high mercury contamination, where fish and cats and birds started sort of acting erratically and then dropping dead 
um, in Peru, where this happens, where there's mercury runoff into the environment, um, there are studies of the human population. They find the most elevated levels, obviously, among mi miners who, who use mercury regularly. But then um, of people who live in the city, for example, um, they have um, concentrations of mercury that are, that are far exceeding what is known to be safe. Um, and for example, women of child rearing age, and I forget exactly what that age range is, had um, some of the highest concentrations, not because they were doing the work directly, but because they eat fish and fit and mercury bioaccumulates. Um, so, you know, basically you can see like a direct result of um, mercury being leached off into the environment. Um, and making its way up the food chain until ultimately it gets to humans who eat the fish and then they have high concentrations of mercury. And one of the challenges with, you know, making this a health issue um, and a conservation issue is that the, the effects of it are delayed and oftentimes they're intergenerational. So there are many people now studying um, what happens to the offspring of um, of parent generations that have had high mercury exposure. And they're finding all sorts of like um, cells, you know, brain cells that have methylation patterns that stay consistent across generations, even though those offspring are not exposed to mercury. So those are epigenetic effects. Um, and then they see also, also cognitive effects. But you know, like with anything with humans, it's very hard to pinpoint like one cause when you find like a, like a sort of a syndrome, right? So, so this is one of the main challenges in, in convincing people to change behavior is because you don't readily have a, a clear, it's, it's kind of like coronavirus symptoms. Oh, you have a cough, you have a rash, you have a fever, you have a headache, it could be anything. But, but we know mercury causes cognitive defects. We know it causes congenital effects. Um, we know that it's it's transmitted to offspring and future generations. And we know it eventually it's gonna accumulate and cause ecological dysfunction as well. Um, but when, you, when people talk about like controlling it, often we're focusing on the health, but also on the conservation impact, all the deforestation that's associated with this practice, um, because it's very challenging to, you know, to show people what happens if they consume mercury. At the at the level that they're currently consuming it. Yeah, wow, that that is a lot, and it's it's crazy how you can see it not only with the people that are living right there on the river, but it also gets into the cities and expands to a much larger area than just the communities right right next to where the mining is taking place. Yeah. I definitely see that playing a, a large role in the the conservation issues, of course, because like you said it's hard because you don't have that viable here. This is causing this in, you know, you and your offspring and stuff like that. So I definitely see that as a challenge with all these effects of the mining on the ecosystem and the personal health of individuals and uh, people as well. Is this mining taking place legally, illegally, or a mixture of the both? Well, I knew you would throw me a tough question. So that is the tough one, I think, for today. Um, so 
<clears throat> Efforts have been made to legalize it. And the extent to which what even you saw this um, in your trip to the Amazon, the extent to which those are legal uh, operations, I don't know. Um, I don't have figures on how much, what percentage of the mercury um, the mining that you see is legal or not. And I was actually looking for um, some information on it um, and didn't readily find it. I know it must be out there. Um, the, the impression that I have is that the bulk is illegal. Um, I follow the uh, MAP project, monitoring of the Andean Amazon, so the, the monitoring Andean Amazon project, uh, MAAP, is one group that monitors mercury, um, uh, sorry, <clears throat> gold mining um, in the Amazon um, through the use of satellite imagery and creating lots of maps over different time intervals to see if things are growing or decreasing. Um, and, you know, they, everyone uses most frequently the term illegal <laughs> gold mining. Um, and the recent part, our articles that I've seen also kind of talk about it and it's in, and refer to, uh, the problem still as illegal gold mining. And I know that Peru has operation mercury that took started in February of 2019, which is very much a military like approach of controlling, um, gold mining in the area. Um, and I think that's more about preventing people and not legalizing it. Um, so uh, it's a tough one for me to, ans to, to answer. I don't exactly know, but my impression is most of it is illegal. <laughs> I definitely think that one was gonna be a little bit tough because I'm having, looking into this subject matter a little bit more, I'm having the same difficulties finding answers to that question as into percentages and the the logistics and the legalities of you know what actually is going on so thank you for that yeah i did see some things and when i was in peru after i was uh assisting fpi in research i went and did some treks in the andes and i did meet some uh very cool people that have grown up and uh live in peru and they did mention that you know, a, a large majority of the population in Peru does work in some type of tourism, um, you know, industry. And with the COVID-19 pandemic really shutting that down, a lot of them were out of work for a while. And some of those individuals had experiences where they had, they seen a, a bit of a, you know, spike in the gold mining that has happened over the pandemic. Did you notice, you know, from the when you went, missed the year, and then went back, did you notice a larger impact of the gold mines from the, the locations that you've seen? Yeah. Um, on my entire experience of uh, coming and going um, from the Amazon, uh, it has increased dramatically. Um, and, uh, I know this not because I, as not through my own efforts of documenting or counting how many rigs I see along the river. I know this because when I started out, there was just one boat 
for everyone to get up the river once a day. And it took um, nine to 10 hours to reach the point at which our station is located. Now there are boats constantly. You can leave at any time of day um, that you want and you will reach the field site where we work in three to four hours. Um, you can call a boat to come get you from the nearest town. They'll ride all the way up river, collect you and bring you back. I mean, that's how much business is booming. There, there are boat rides on demand. Um, and um, you can see infrastructural growth. I mean, you can see Puerto Maldonado, you know, because of, you know, the biggest industry in town, which is gold mining, um, you know, is developing. It has a beautiful plaza. It has a paved road, the road to get you know, part of the way to the field station wasn't paved when I started out. Now it's perfectly beautifully paved. It takes much less time. Um, and so I see much more activity um, and um, at the place where I catch a boat, uh, I see that town growing. So that is the main sort of um, access point to the mining where, where I visit. Um, that area has grown and there's no other big sort of... Um, career or, or occupation in town, it's all mining. And then along the river itself, um, I've over the past few years, directly answering your question, yes, it feels like there are more uh, mining rigs. What you don't see anymore are the huge ones. You don't see multiple two-decker you know, houses on the, on the river um, where people have like the luxurious mining job there is. Those don't exist anymore, but there's many small rigs all over the place. And what you do see now too, is that if you look through the first line of forest, you see people in inland mining, whereas before they used to be directly on the river. And I think that's a result of how, when there is a crackdown on gold mining, illegal gold mining, um, you know, the people that are most uh, quickly um, encountered and punished are those along the river that are easily accessible. So now people tend to go into the forest and, and cut down forest and mine wherever they like. Um, and nobody really knows except that you can still hear a generator. I did see some updated pictures of across the river from the field station that was completely different than even when I left uh, a couple months ago. I could see that the area in which they were mining where we could see the generator and the, the light on 24 seven, I could see that area in pictures has grown compared to the pictures that I had taken when I was there. So I definitely see. Yeah. And it's a, it's around the clock work. You know, the, the, the teams that are sent out to do the, the actual gold mining, they, they work 24 hour shifts, you know, so it kind of never stops. They're very efficient. Yeah. Sadly for the forest. So I do have two questions left for you. One of them might be tough because the, I don't know. I don't know if there's necessarily a cut or dry answer, but I'm going to hit you with the harder one first. In your mind, what what do you think needs to be done to better conserve these areas of the Amazon? There's a there's a lot going into that question, especially you know when you look at the gold mining and how you actually go about one, maybe regulating it two minimizing the area, you know, it obviously has a negative right. effect on the forest, but also people necessarily don't 
see the negative effect and they see positive effects for, you know, income and infrastructure for the people that live there. What do you think that we can shed light on that might help improve the situation? Okay. I got a simple answer for you. Oh, okay. Okay. Stop buying gold, lower the price of gold because gold is so valuable. Um, at one point, it was over a thousand times more valuable than mercury. Mercury is not the, the use of mercury to, to do gold mining is not the only way. There are other methods, but mercury is so cheap and so easy. It requires no equipment. It requires no training whatsoever. So as long as the disparity in the cost of mercury and gold exists and the demand for gold exists, um, you know, this is going to be very hard to control. It is such work in these parts of the world is, um, sorely needed. There's not great opportunity. You already mentioned it, you know, people have to live, people need, need ways to make money. And this is the easiest game in town. Um, and you cannot solve conservation associated with gold mining without dealing with the challenging part of what do you do with all the people that are involved in the industry? I mean, the town that you fly into in the Madre de Dios, the capital, you know, it is basically growing as a result of gold mining. It's kind of like when the big gas boom took off in the Northwest of the U S you know, it just created, created a city from, from what was before, you know, very small towns. Um, so yeah, on a global level, what we need to do is control our demand, our desire for gold. <laughs> Unfortunately, I see that in a lot of issues as I study conservation. A lot of it comes back to the money side of things. And sometimes that it's unfortunate that that's the way it is. Um, but one more for you. I don't even know if you've ever experienced this, but if you have, ever experienced coming face-to-face -face with miners in the field? Yes, and I have. Had, what was that experience like? Uh, two occasions. Um, well, th three occasions and multiple times. So I'll just describe the occasions. So um, we've asked miners to come over to the research station to help us. And they're happy to do so. You know, there's not a huge, there, there's, there's not always a big, um, you know, people might imagine this big conflict between, you know, local populations that are doing gold mining and scientists and researchers that are trying to do research and protect the forest. Um, but the two aren't really, we're not really in conflict. We, we recognize that the, the, the we, we recognize that there, there is a problem and that, you know, we don't have a shared end goal um but we have fine relationships so we sometimes need help and so we'll go over to a mining group um and say hey can you help us uh whether it's like lifting heavy equipment up to where the station is or finding somebody that's lost in the forest um so that's those that's one interaction. Um, it's been fine, um, and it exposes this opportunity to create more relationship, which ultimately could go a long way in helping change, you know, perceptions and behaviors. But 
you know, that, that requires funding and resources and dedication that a lot of researchers aren't able to keep up. Um, so we've had, uh, you know, I've been exposed to mercury in sort of an educational way. Um, the, the, the organization that sort of runs the field station where I work um, used to have uh, sort of an uh, informational exchange with uh, like local mining communities and researchers so there that you would actually have the opportunity to go see you know what their work is like and they would have the opportunity to come see what your work is like and it was a really nice thing and I, I don't it's not been maintained over the years but when I started it, it existed this this uh, exchange and and that would be great to see again um, finally one time I had a group of students with me and we were walking in um, on a particular part of the trail system, uh, Cochalobo is one of the Oxbow lakes that is very popular to visit at the field site where I work. And I was taking a group of students towards this Oxbow lake when all of a sudden three miners were coming down the trail, um, one with a machete, one with a gun, and another one carrying something that looked a lot like a peccary. Um, and I'm here with the students um, and they're basically coming back from the Oxbow Lake, trying presumably to get back to the river where they've parked their boat. And here we were blocking the path. And in that moment, um, there was no exchange of any kind. You know, we just sort of nodded at each other and everyone went their way. Um, you know, I was concerned, and I think uh, anyone would be concerned of, you know, having some misunderstanding in that situation that could have gone in a bad direction. So the best, you know, course, you know, that I could see was to just not engage, and um, they didn't engage. And but 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 it but it was a learning opportunity because all of the students got to see that while gold mining is one problem um, because of what's used in the process. Um, there's the other consequences, such as deforestation, which you mentioned, um, and uh, hunting. And hunting is not a biased and unbiased process. When, when people hunt, they're hunting the big, the obvious, the vulnerable. So big primates, big terrestrial animals like peccary. And um, it's very noticeable where I work, we have, we have an abundance of uh, small monkeys. And um, over the years, the larger mon size monkeys have started to increase their population size. Um, but it's been gradual. And, and I think that's because prior to the area being uh, used for research and conservation, it was, it was a logging concession. Um, and uh, people extract, you know, it's much cheaper to just hunt your meat than to bring meat all the way, you know, down the river where you don't have refrigeration and all sorts of other basics we do in the city. Yeah. I think it's amazing that they were willing to uh, help you get heavy equipment from the bottom all the way up to the top, because that, that track is no joke. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's over 200 steps. It's a... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, we can see what a heavy subject matter and, you know, I just wanted to say thank you to Gideon for joining us today. It was great to hear from someone who has witnessed the effects of the mining firsthand. So Gideon, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome.
Um, as you as you guys can tell from this discussion, gold mining in Peru is a large conservation issue, and the discussion needs to spread a little bit. Um, it needs a larger audience. People need to be more aware about the, the the mining that is taking place along these rivers and the Amazon. So, if you agree, uh, please mark your calendar for November twenty second. I will be hosting a discussion forum where we will be taking this discussion a little bit further. And on this blog, uh, where this is posted on my blog, there will be a time and a Zoom link for everyone to join remotely if you would like. I will also make sure on that blog post, there are links to Dr. Erkenswick's website for you to explore and see, you know, the research he does. It's very interesting. And to Field Projects International, like I said, in case you would like more information about the different opportunities they have and the research that they do. I would love to answer any questions regarding mining or anything else that Gideon and I talked about today, or if you're interested in possibly applying for Field Projects International, I can share with you my experiences on that. Um, you can feel free to email me. I will put my email, my personal email in the blog post. And just keep in mind, sometimes conservation issues seem to be an endless uphill battle. So I just wanted to leave you all with a simple quote by author John Green. There is hope even when your brain tells you there isn't. So just keep that in mind moving forward. Take care and we will talk soon.